Welcome to the AKC Podcast, an audio resource for the King's community following the Associateship of King's College programme. The AKC is an inclusive, research-led programme of lectures, which explore diverse religious and cultural perspectives. For more information, visit kcl.ac.uk forward slash AKC. Lecture resources and further reading links for this lecture are available on the AKC Keats area. Thank you very much for coming. Well, without more ado, we shall begin. It is a hot, sleepy afternoon in the summer of 1993, and I'm sitting on the banks of the Vézère in southwest France. The green water flows gently past me beneath lines of poplars, and at my back, the picturesque little town of Le Bugue, with winding, cobbled streets, Restaurants in the square where clients are sitting under the trees. A riverfront where lovers stroll. Above me there are high limestone cliffs which blaze in the sun and woodland which you can see just in the background here rolling away over plateaus for miles and miles. It's a place to dream, a place to relax, a place to get away from the stresses of urban life. A timeless unchanging landscape, or so I thought. The story of how I came to write the poetic sequence When the Animals Came, which was published in a collection called In a Valley of This Restless Mind in 1997, is the story of how this view of the world, my view of the whole of the modern human world, of how we exist now on our planet, was overturned. In the writing of this poem, I became unable to look at my own society, its preoccupations, achievements, and desires in the way that I had done all my life. I began to see through all the unwitting assumptions I and those around me were bringing to bear on how life should be lived. Instead, what had happened in the past shone a transformative light onto our present and cast a dark shadow across our future. The act of recreating an ancient world imaginatively brought me a new understanding of the relationship between human society, environment and spiritual belief. The human beings of this world, the world of what is called the Upper Paleolithic, and I'll explain that in a minute, engaged all three of these spheres kinetically and interconnectedly, seeing them as interdependent. I learnt that the complex interplay between our spiritual life and the life of the nature upon which we all depend is part of what it means to be human, and we forget this quite literally at our peril. We need to learn again what our ancestors knew and practised at every moment of their lives. But before we go on, and as a point of reference to give you an idea of the antiquity of what we're discussing, the Old Stone Age, or Paleolithic as it's known scientifically, is considered to have run from about two and a half million years before the present, 
to about 11,000 years before the present, so a huge span of time. The Old Stone Age is divided by researchers into lower, middle, and upper. And it is this last, the Upper Paleolithic, which is characterized in the archaeological record by a huge burst of social and artistic activity, which has fascinated both experts and laymen ever since early man began to be studied uh, closely less than 200 years ago. The Upper Paleolithic is usually dated from about 50,000 BP to 11,000 BP. And it is this phase that concerns us today. As I hope to show you, it is not so far removed from us as we might think. So what did this endeavor entail for me as a writer? In order to enter the culture, art, and religious world of this apparently distant period in our history, I embarked on several years of extensive research. It began here on the banks of the Vézère. A friend had offered me a house for the summer to write. I had jumped at the chance, knowing that nearby was the site of Lascaux, dated at about 20,000 BP, whose famous story I had first heard as a child. How a small group of adolescents searching for their dogs that had disappeared down a rabbit hole, found themselves in a complex of caves whose walls were covered with vast friezes of reindeer, horses, bison, and aurochs, the massive and undomesticated ancestor of modern cattle. And here you have one of the horses, one of the aurochses. I had long dreamed of seeing Lascaux, for it had been one of the greatest discoveries of undisturbed Upper Paleolithic art in the world. That was all I knew when I arrived. On this particular day, we were exploring somewhere else, Le Bug. As we drove out of town, we saw a signpost saying, Grotte de Barabao. On the spur of the moment, I and my companion decided to go in. Inside, there were none of the dramatic paintings that you see here and that I hoped to see. There were some interesting limestone formations. The atmosphere was curious. Our guide explained about the geology, riverbeds, and rock falls. Gradually, the damp coolness, the shadows, the confined space began to heighten our awareness. The guide used her little torch to highlight deep scars on the wall, which we would not otherwise have noticed. They were the marks of Ice Age bears sharpening their claws as they awoke from hibernation. Then suddenly what we had in front of us was not the marks made by these animals. The tiny spotlight traced other lines, and out of the rock face emerged the engraved silhouettes of bears, stubby-maned horses, an ibex, an aurochs. This is the black bull at Lascaux, and here is one of the aurochses at Barabao. The, the wall was alive with their spirits. As the guide showed us how the natural accidents of the rock face had conjured up an imaginative landscape for the hunter-gatherers 
of about 15,000 years ago. And you can see here that little, uh, that little round thing in the middle was actually once a flint. And they know that the, um, they've worked out from uh, dating that this aurochs was drawn around the flint. So the actual accidents of the wall had given this imaginative idea. How these accidents had spurred the hunter-gatherers to speak to the life in their underworld surroundings and how this world spoke back. I emerged out of this strange territory into the sunlight again, already a different person, because I had encountered a new reality face to face. Who were the people of the Paleolithic? What was the world they lived in? And what were they hearing and seeing in the caves and trying to tell us? An immense journey had begun. Two summers later, I returned. During that time, the engravings of Barabao kept haunting me, sinking into my imagination. I decided to try and evoke in poetic form the vanished and frequently misrepresented world that these people inhabited. I sensed it contained wisdoms that we once knew but which we have forgotten. So this was the genesis of the poem When the Animals Came. One precious element, surprisingly, was the AA Big Road Atlas to France, 1992. It belonged to a pre-Satnav era, and I am astonished at the intricacy of the topographical detail it gives. River valleys, inclines, forests, the imprint of long vanished glaciers and volcanoes, as well as the later apparatus of modern living, obviously. Roads, canals, towns, villages, and so on. My 2022 road atlas is impoverished by comparison, concentrating only on roads and eliding much of the dimensionality of the landscape. And that is a kind of metaphor. In the twinkling of 30 years, it's a metaphor for how knowledge, and more catastrophically, our perception itself, gets lost. What was intimate becomes forgotten. What was all-encompassing becomes invisible. If I turn to page 101 of this atlas, I have made marks all over it, along the Dordogne, Lot, Vézère and their tributaries, and further away in the Ardèche and the Aveyron, marking where Paleolithic sites are. There are dozens and dozens, hundreds and hundreds. And that's just in these regions of France alone. Across Europe, there are hundreds more. Elsewhere in the world, in Australia, Indonesia, the Middle East, Russia, Africa, China, even more. So the act of drawing these images or making these marks on the map turned it into a negative palimpsest. For as I did so, the shape of another lost culture started to emerge. What it showed was a geographical preference, perhaps obviously, for river valleys, which then attracted a density of population, which had in its turn produced a concentration of social 
and spiritual energies. In short, the human world and th the natural world and faith were inextricably linked. I set up, off up these rivers in search of these landscapes. But very quickly, I realized that something wasn't right. What I was seeing couldn't possibly have prompted what I met in the decorated caves. It wasn't merely a case of agriculture having taken over from forest, of man moving in with his domesticated animals. For man had been here long, long before all that, and for a very long time. The oldest friezes or engravings that I saw date from about 25,000 BP. The youngest from about 10,000 BP. That's 15,000 years. Nor was I satisfied by the standard narratives that the animals depicted, the auroxes, the woolly mammoths, the ibex, the cave bears, the stubby-maned horses, whose nearest equivalent is the Przewalski horse of the Central Asian steppe. All these animals had simply disappeared or died out, weren't there anymore. That was obvious. Why weren't they there? Why wasn't man still entering the caves to encounter the cave of his own mind and the cave of his gods? Les Esies de Tayac lies at the centre of this conundrum. This large village of about 1,000 inhabitants sits in a bowl of steep limestone hills, which you can see here, where the Vézère meets the river Boune. It is at a natural crossroads through the high plateau above it. And it was here in 1868 that the paleontologist Edouard Larté excavated an ancient Homo sapiens skeleton under an overhang and gave the alternative name that we bear, or we think we bear, Cro-Magnon to us. But my map, as I had said, showed that there were sites of Paleolithic activity under virtually every bluff around Les Esies. The names so famous that they make every archaeologist of the old Stone Age go weak at the knees. Names like Fond de Gaume, Lamy Coq, Logerie Haute, Cap Blanc, and many more. All this explains why this unassuming little town that you see here is a UNESCO World Heritage Site. For thousands, not hundreds of years, during a crucial period of our history, this valley was a focus for exchange of all kinds, material, social, and spiritual, for the elaboration of systems of belief and the creation of a sacred terminus. The key to unlocking the first door of understanding lay in the natural world, beginning with the geology, but also then the climate, the flora and fauna that surrounded Paleolithic men. To evoke how the cave painters lived, created, worshipped and died, I needed to live in this landscape again. 
and this required two quite different approaches. First, it meant visiting as many sites as I could. Some open to the public, some not. I persuaded young research students who are often used as custodians on the ground in the summer to show me at least the entrance to those normally open, open to specialists. One agreed to chaperone me to, round the countryside to find one of the most secret of all, La Ferracie, where eight Neanderthals, including children, were ritually buried about 50,000 years ago. But of course, once I had a sense of the topography, I needed to know what the ancient environment was like. The fauna in the caves is indicative of a cold climate at this southerly latitude, a deeper phase of the ice age that we are still in, just. What sort of a place was it? To recreate the upper Paleolithic in what is now southwest France meant research in a gamut of different disciplines. And I saw how each one linked to the way humankind has evolved. To give you a sense, geology explains how the caves formed naturally over millions of years of water seeping through and dissolving the soluble limestone. Without these caves, there can be no cave art, only open sites with which the upper Paleolithic landscape must have been dotted, some have been found, but only an infinitesimally small proportion survive. So geology quite literally shapes our imaginations. The combined disciplines of paleoclimatology, physics, chemi chemistry and biology, their analyses help to indicate to us what the dominant climate was like. One of the most important tools in establishing past climate change, and you may have been told this already in another lecture, and how it impacts life on Earth, is the analysis of the ratio of oxygen isotope 16 to oxygen isotope 18. These are absorbed into the skeletons of little things called foraminifera, tiny one-celled organisms, that are preserved in deep sea cores. The heavier isotope, 18, indicates a period when water was drawn from the oceans as ice, hence a period of cold climate. When the ice thaws, the lighter isotope prevails. This is what a graph of these fluctuations over the last 250,000 years a period critical for human development looks like. I don't expect you to be able to read the writing, but if you, if you notice that on the left are colder phases, on the right are warmer phases, and we're at the top, so it goes from oldest to youngest. You will notice that there have been, as you know already, I'm sure, lots of phases of cooling and warming. All the upper Paleolithic activity that we're talking about takes place in that last bit where it zooms up off to the right. You will also notice 
that these periods of change happen not gradually, but often quite suddenly, geologically speaking, over thousands of years, not tens of thousands of years. And we are right at the top, and you can see that, of course, we're in one of the warmest phases for the last 250,000 years. It's not a coincidence that all the cultures in the world have a flood story. So water and its behavior also shape our imaginations. The disciplines of paleobotany and paleozoology study ancient flora and fauna. This allows us to put flesh on the skeleton of any, on the geological skeleton of any place, given place, and repopulate it. They tell us what vegetable food resources were available to the animals and the humans living there. And upon, of course, the um, herbivores, you will also get dependent carnivores. In the Upper Paleolithic, they show, of course, a colder climate than today, but one which was extremely rich in vast herds of migratory grazing animals such as reindeer and bison, large herds of horse, and the presence of megafauna such as the, the megoceros, a member of the deer family. We are all familiar with the grotesque popular image of prehistoric man as a half-starved, half-naked, runty individual, spearing the odd fish, before clubbing his womenfolk around the head as a prelude to lovemaking. But some of these caricatures can be laid at the theories of less rigorous archaeologists in the past. Here's one of them. Admittedly, this is meant to be a Neanderthal, but um, this image couldn't be more wrong. Life was demanding for our Paleolithic ancestors, but far from resource-deprived. It offered abundance to the sophisticated, resilient, and skilled human beings from who, for whom it was home. And of course, all these gifts were part of their flowering. To present all this to my mind's eye, the maize and tobacco fields, the oak and chestnut forests by which I was surrounded, and which until very recently had hidden the sites and even protected them, all these had to be stripped away. I looked out upon a landscape where circa 20,000 BP, there were few trees except in the valleys, where grassland steppe spread across the plateau as far as the ice could see. Fast flowing melt ice came down in swollen rivers, creating vast quantities of gravel that split them into different channels, such as exist in northern Canada and Alaska today. So you can see this looked more like this. Experimental archaeology also helped me. At the site of Labby Cock, I watched flint nappers take a nodule of flint, make a weapon and prepare a hide and if you think flint napping is easy, try learning it. It takes years to perfect. At La Chapelle au Saint, I saw how our ancestors used dried mushrooms to carry fire with them, around with them. 
at the Preistel Park in Tursac, I marveled at the beauty of Przewalski's horses. Here's the, here are some modern ones, and here are some from the cave of Chauvet for you to compare. There they are. I stood on the safe side of a very robust fence to look at what a back-bred Taurus bull might look like. He try and convey the sense of uh, what an aurochs might have looked like. There it is. It's not identical, of course, but it does give you some sense. Many of the original sites, of course, are not in caves. Caves will come to. Where people lived were in cliff overhangs known as abri. And these offer the richest assortment of the day-to-day -day life of the Paleolithic who lived there. Evidence of hearths, what they ate, and also sometimes human bones and burials. I looked at the way modern hunter-gatherers in uh, Africa and Australia and pastoralists in Siberia and Lapland interact with their environment to get some idea of what it was like 20,000 years ago. Although one must be very careful of identifying these societies with those of the Paleolithic, something of how they understand their environment does, is, is suggestive. One of the things that it told me was not only how inward they are with their environment, but how the natural and divine worlds are as one. For one constant all these societies seem to have, and that is the belief that the natural world is manifestly sacred. Long, long before man lived in cities or was a farmer, he was a spiritual being and an artist. As the contemporary archaeologist Jean Clot points out in Werner Herzog's extraordinary film about the Chauvet Caves, Cave of Forgotten Dreams, we should more rightly call humankind not Homo sapiens, but Homo spiritualis. The headline making painted and engraving, engraved caves were, by contrast with the overhang shelters, for encountering this sacred world. They are places both of sensory deprivation and of heightened sensory awareness, as I have suggested to you. When you enter them and you don't have a light, of course, Paleolithic man had um, kind of tapers, he had animal fat, he went, he had light. But if you turn off the light when you are in these caves, you enter a uniform velvety darkness where you have no sense even of your own body. And this is disorientating in the extreme. It's a darkness we never experience above ground. If you make then a light, suddenly your perceptual awareness is very heightened and the walls come alive with shapes. And of course, um, as uh, ancient man knew, he, that's why he went in there and probably why he, paint, why he will have painted in there. Some guides will actually make a, the sound of a human cry, and that's one of the most bizarre experiences I've ever had because it enlarges and booms down the cave systems and returns impalpable waves out of the Earth's most intimate chambers. 
a living, terrifying thing. It's one of the most unnerving experiences I've ever had. So that's why, in my poem, the central section is about belief. I create a bird man, and more of that in a minute, who enters the caves to bring this reality to his tribe. Since the first discoveries of these caves, there's been a great deal of speculation as to what was going on in there. What was the significance of what was painted there? They were initially interpreted by the Abbé Bray, one of the first people to, dis to enter these caves, as sympathetic magic. Here you've got the entrance to Fond de Gorm, and you can see what I mean about the, um, the sort of opening into the underworld effect that some of these caves have. So the Abbé Bray interpreted the paintings as hunting magic, but this idea has now largely been superseded. In the 1960s, the structuralists André Leroy-Gourand and Annette Lamain et Empereur suggested that they were, um, or what a structuralist interpretation of these sites. And they tried to associate different animal types with a male-female dualism. Most recently, and in my view, most convincingly, the archeologists Jean Clot and David Lewis Williams have suggested that the paintings were shamanic in um, and religious in purpose. So that's why I chose a shaman to enter the womb of nature to commune with the transcendent spirits who are on the other side of the wall. It's a realm of renewal, of ancient promises, and a reminder of custodianship. It's also a place of fear and annihilation. In the caves, we meet the wall of the veil between our reality and another one. Among elements that are highly suggestive of this, of the cooperation between the human and the divine, are the multiple handprints to be found in conjunction with many paintings. People have, a lot of ink has been spilt over what these mean. Jean-Claude has proposed that they were made when the initiates placed their hands on the wall or veil and thereby, by making an imprint then of their hand, by blowing um, uh, pigment around it, they pass through the wall into the spirit world. This is even an idea we meet in the New Testament, in the letter to the Hebrews, where Christ is described as the new and living way. He opened the curtain of flesh, that is, of his body. To do this, I drew on the most mysterious painting of all, at the bottom of what is called the pit in Lascaux. Here you have um, some of those handprints that I was talking to you about. Don't know if you can see them, but on the right there, there are about five handprints on this particular drawing of horses at Peshmel. And you can see very clearly how the pigment has been made, um, how it's been blown to show the positive imprint there, or negative imprint, I should say. So, places of strangeness, and especially the pit at Lascaux. You have a very rare depiction of a human being, apparently gored and dying, next to a gored and dying bison. I don't know if you can see, there's a kind of arrow going into the bison on the right, um, and 
clearly there's some interaction between the two of them. Its secret and inaccessible position, together with the artefacts found there, spears, resin, lamps, suggest a closely guarded sanctuary. I think it's legitimate to accord this depiction prime importance in the spiritual beliefs of those who made it. There are other similar scenes in the area. It's one of the most enduring psychological and theological tropes in human culture because it acknowledges the brokenness of the human state and the need to heal it. And I had these connections in mind when writing the end of this section. When Sinhikuli comes out of the caves, he's met by his wife, who tells him that his daughter has died. In the last section of the poem, the landscape of the steppe is obscured by those forests that we saw earlier. The animals no longer come. Why had this way of life vanished when it had been so successful for tens of thousands of years? My research revealed a story that is very familiar to us now in 2023, but in 1995, fewer people talked about it. Those oxygen isotopes I showed you are a barometer of climate change. For all of us, history, it has oscillated about its axis and also its orbit has changed. This is a natural and cyclic phenomenon. It doesn't necessarily mean it's a benign one, but in the past, it was self-regulating. Ice ages bring dry, even desert conditions and less tree cover, warming, wetter and greener periods. Over time, the increased vegetation acts as a carbon sink and slowly creates a counterbalancing cooling effect. The biological and physical cycles thus interact, interact and modify each other. Between 12,000 and 8,000 BP, a concatenation of heavenly body events caused the Earth's climate to warm, not gradually, but catastrophically quickly, as we have seen. Almost within human memory, because hunter-gatherers have memories that go back thousands, not hundreds of years. The great plains of Doggerland were gone under the North Sea, and the steppe of the Dordogne was transformed into forest. In such conditions, grassland fauna cannot feed or migrate. They simply cease to come, retreating instead northwards, and the culture they had sustained disappeared from sight and from mind. This is the cause of our profound amnesia about the Upper Paleolithic. This has implications for our future. For since the Neolithic, itself an adaptation to the devastating climate change that I have just described, and much later, the agricultural and industrial revolutions of the 18th and 19th centuries, one new element has been introduced here, how contemporary human society lives. Anthropogenic, that is man-made climate warming, is with us and documented as such. But our activities now no longer allow for the regeneration 
of such ecospheres as will offset it. Quite the contrary. The last time we experienced climate change naturally on anything approaching this scale, everything we thought we held dear disappeared. This may be what awaits us again. But then we were not agents in the process, nor could we do anything to slow it. Now, we do know, and we can. Meeting, recreating, and reliving our Paleolithic past in the work of a poem taught me how profoundly our model of being needs to change for us to have a meaningful future. One of the less expected and more positive uh, effects of the COVID crisis has been to remind the developed world what good things can come for our physical and psychological well-being from a contact with nature, let alone our spiritual one. If a dynamic equilibrium is to exist between us and our environment, if the latter is to continue to be a source of inspiration and spiritual sustenance, as it was to our ancestors, then we need to rediscover their attitudes of humility, respect, and reverence, even awe, and act upon it as they did. This might offer us all a chance to live in better harmony with what has brought us into being. We are utterly dependent on nature. Otherwise, our final vision may metaphorically be the one that I gave Sinhikuli at the end of my poem. And here it is. I'll read it out to you in case you can't read it, but hopefully you can. He's sitting on one of those limestone bluffs and watching the forest come in. The animals have already retreated. Sinhikuli touches his wife's hand. High on the upper levels of the cliffs, he leans against the limestone, warm from the setting sun, and studies the outlines of the plateau across which the brotherhoods used to come. The river runs a curl of silver through the trees. The bulls leap in the sleepless sanctuaries. The silence of the forest grows apace. Thank you very much for listening. Thank you for listening to the AKC podcast. If you have enjoyed this lecture, please click subscribe in your podcast app to receive future episodes. AKC, at the heart of King's thinking. Thank you.